Do you love Austin's Parks and Trails? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Austin Parks Cast by Austin Parks Foundation. Meet me outside. Meet me outside, my dear. I want to be. Welcome back, y'all. In today's episode, we'll learn how the city and community partners are working to understand, uncover, and address racial equity in Austin. Specifically, we'll focus on our city's parks, trails, and green spaces. We invited a group of panelists to tackle tough but essential conversations about equity in Austin's outdoor spaces. We'll hear about the goals and challenges of racial equity work, current initiatives, and why it's so important for residents to be aware and engaged in this effort. My co-host Kathleen will introduce the session, then hand the reins to our guest host, Rocio Villalobos of the City of Austin Equity Office. A huge thank you to our guest, Luan Tucker from the Austin Parks and Recreation Department, Starla Simmons from the Steve Hicks School of Social Work at the University of Texas, and Kelly Coleman from the City of Austin Equity Office. All right, y'all, I'll hand it off to Kathleen. Let's get into it. Welcome to Austin Parks Foundation's Park Summit Series. I'm Kathleen Barron. I'm the Senior Programs Manager. Um, you can find all of our content on um, austinparks.org slash parks-summit. Um, today's session is Parks for All, Promoting Equity in, um, in Austin's Parks. Uh, the city, along with community partners, are working to uncover and address equity issues. And this session will focus in particular on uh, parks and outdoor spaces. Um, first, I'm going to um, I'm going to allow the video for all of our participants today. Um, just so you know, you know everybody's working from home, um, so there might be dogs, kids, um, you know, other kinds of interruptions. But I'm sure everybody can understand that at this point. Um, so I'm going to bring everyone's video up and unmute everyone. All right, so first, um, I want to introduce Rocio Villalobos. Um, she's the Community Services Program Coordinator for Immigrant, Immigrant Affairs at the City of Austin Equity Office. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with her in the past um, through the Children and Nature Collaborative of Austin, also known as SINCA, um, where she did some really outstanding work around equity in the outdoors. And so I'm very excited for her to be facilitating this panel. Um, and I'm going to let her take it from here. And um, just so you all know, um, since we're doing this live stream to Facebook, if you have any questions and you're viewing it through Facebook, um, please do uh, ask questions in the comments. And then at the end of the panel discussion, uh, we'll have a few minutes to be able to address this. Great. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you. Uh, good morning. My name is Rocio Villalobos. And uh, as Kathleen mentioned, I'm the Immigrant Affairs Coordinator for the City of Austin. And prior to this role, I was doing work at the intersection of racial equity and leadership in the outdoors. So the topic that we're discussing today is very near to my heart. Um, I want to begin by acknowledging that we are on native land. Long before this area was called Austin or even Waterloo, it was home to native and indigenous peoples like the Tonkawa and the Kualiteka. And the beautiful and, and life-giving waters in this region that draw people here now drew people here thousands of years ago. Um, the Kualiteka 
for one, believe that their people emerged from the springs, the sacred springs. So this region has a deep cultural meaning for native and indigenous peoples. So often the stories that we tell uh, begin and end with colonization and highlight the so-called accomplishments of settlers while simultaneously erasing the violence that was enacted against native and indigenous peoples and black people in the name of progress. And you know, it's important for us to acknowledge that there's a lot of violence in the history of this country, a lot of violence in the removal and genocide of native and indigenous peoples, a lot of violence in the enslavement of black people and the labor that was forcibly extracted from them to build this country. And it's because of our inability to reckon with that history and acknowledge it that we continue to see racist outcomes across the board today, whether we're looking at housing, unemployment, life expectancy, even tree canopy cover, uh, and where parks are located and what condition they're in. I grew up in East Austin and my life was ultimately shaped by two borders, um, I-35 as the East-West divide and the U.S.-Mexico border that separates my family and that disrupted my ancestors' ability to move freely across the Americas. And the fire for sort of social justice for me was sparked by Poder, people organized in the defense of earth and her resources after learning about the history of the oil tank farms at airport in Springdale, where I know the, the Austin Parks Foundation offices um, are currently located. You know, I walked by those oil tank farms on my way to school at Go Valley as a kid, um, not knowing that they were poisoning and killing residents in the area or the city's racist history including that 1928 master plan that allowed for that kind of toxic industry to be allowed in my community. Um, so for me, social justice and racial equity are ultimately my life's work. I feel like I've been called to do this work, uh, much like the speakers we have on today's panel. Um, I have the honor of facilitating a conversation with some really incredible people, um, Starla Simmons, Lawan Tucker, and Kelly Coleman. And I'd like to now invite them to introduce themselves, starting with Lawan. Hey, everybody. Uh, like Rosia said, thanks for the introduction and that powerful opening. Uh, my name is Lawan Tucker. I work for the City of Austin Parks and Recreation Department. Particularly, I work in the Natural Resources Division. Uh, and I am the coordinator over Wildlife Austin, which advocates for urban uh, wildlife as the city continues to grow, that we make sure we have a space for uh, not just the people that have less voice, but also the wildlife that we don't necessarily consider stakeholders on landscapes. Uh, and I also um, work with the Austin Nature Preserve System, and it's a new land management group that's looking at these very issues, not just how do we conduct land management for pollinator protection, but how do we invite more people who have been here for a long time uh, into the conversation so that we're partnering appropriately with the communities that we, we want to serve. So this is a personal and a professional passion of mine, and I'm excited to be on this panel with uh, my fellow uh, advocates in the process. Starla? I should know better than that. <laughs> um, I'm Starla Simmons. Thank you. This is, I'm so happy to be on a panel with fine folks. Um, I am currently a clinical assistant professor at the UT Steve Hicks School of Social Work. So I'm a social worker through and through. Um, I long, I've 
spent most of my social work career previously working in Eastside schools. So I did school social work for about 11 years on the Eastside, working with kids and families. I'm um, now teaching first year graduate students. Um, and also a big part of my job is uh, serving as the field liaison. So um, coordinating internships, coordinating learning in the field, um, social work practice with students. And formally, um, a couple years ago now, I'm sad about it, I was, uh, I was a volunteer with Outdoor Afro, which is like one of my most proudest accomplishments, proudest things I've ever done. Um, and that is a national organization that uplifts Black leadership in nature. So I had the pleasure of um, planning outdoor activities with Black folks around Austin. And that is still an organization that is working um, and out there doing um, events now. So you should look them up. But um, I started practicing ecotherapy in my social work practice and have been doing that with kids for a long time. I'm also, um, I used to be a camp counselor. So this is a near and dear, you know, I love the outdoors and it's, it's all connected. So I'm happy to be here. I'll pass it over to Kelly. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you, Rocio. Uh, that was a really grounding um, introduction. Um, my name is Kelly Coleman. I, uh, I'm a mom um, of three boys, um, three kids. Oops, sorry, Journey. I have a daughter. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> uh, I haven't had my first cup all the way yet. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to say that just in case y'all hear some stuff in the background, offer uh, grace. Um, and so uh, I was born and raised here, um, like Rocio, but I'm from a neighborhood called Dove Springs. That's in Southeast Austin. Um, the work that I do is with um, Rocio in the equity office with the city of Austin. Um, a lot of what we do is really just um, trying to build out an anti-racist analysis um, with the folks that we work with every day, the folks that um, make things happen in the city, right? Like folks that are doing um, work in our watersheds, folks that are making decisions around our land development code, folks that are implementing um, different ways of um, taking care of ourselves in the health department. Um, those are the folks that, that we work with on a regular basis to try to um, help our city get closer um, to being anti-racist. And as Rocio said, to interrupt um, some of the systems that are producing um, racist outcomes, negative outcomes for people of color. And so um, I feel really special to be on this panel because I'm not a super outdoorsy person. I'm coming, I'm learning. Um, and this has given me an opportunity to really reflect on uh, how much access I really had over the years and didn't even know. Um, and so I'm excited about this. So thank you for having me. Thanks everyone. Um, all right, we'll get started with our first question. Um, so kind of broadly thinking, what was your relationship to the outdoors or the environment when you were growing up? And anyone can, can kick us off, whoever feels moved to move to talk. 
I'll take that one. Um, so my, um, my experience in relationship to the outdoors, uh, I'm going to paint in two different pictures. Um, one was the experience that I had with my grandmother. She was a gardener. Her family uh, were sharecroppers, poor sharecroppers. Uh, my family was enslaved uh, through the transatlantic slave trade, brought over here, uh, and worked their way out of slavery eventually and stayed in the South for a while and then migrated to, towards the Great Migration. So a lot of that um, exposure to the environment has a complex history, right? Because it, we were also forced to work in the outdoors as land managers. Uh, without the compensation, but at the same time, it's healthy to work outside, right? So my um, so my experience came with those two realities. My grandmother taught us how to garden, taught us how to take pride in the landscapes we were stewards over, and she was in Philadelphia and had like uh, horticulture awards and really took was the pride of the neighborhood. And then my father would take us fishing in Georgia and camping, uh, but there was always this reality of what you had to be afraid of wasn't necessarily the trees. And the landscape, you know, you, you respect it and you prepare for it. But also some people may not feel you should be here. So be careful about that and to know that you belong. Um, so I think there's a double history and a double exposure of the reality of the connections and the health of rec not just recreating outside, but just having access to uh, tree canopy cover or clean water. Um, and then, so when I started to move into the outdoors as a career profession, a lot of my family reacted very strangely. They were like, you're going back to work in the fields. So we kind of, you know, that's what we tried to get you to go to school to get away from. Uh, and so that, but I think with that now advocating for, um, job pipelines and advocating for more people that look like us to be in this position and be in positions of power related to how, uh, land use happens and who has access to it. I think they get now the larger concept, but it's both a painful history and an empowering history um, at the same time. So there's that complexity that I think gives a, a different lens to the way we think about the outdoor. And, that, and that's really my experience. Thanks, Lauren. I think um, my, I, I think a lot of Black families have that kind of, they have that same history of like, our, our family was enslaved, start out in the South knew how to work the land and, and also migrated north. My family ended up in St. Louis and my grandmother, who's still alive today, um, they bought a piece of land outside of St. Louis. And so we had a, we had a black family that owned land, which is, you know, that's rare. <laughs> so we grew up with my cousins um, getting dropped off at grandma's house in the summer for months. And we would just, you know, live basically in the woods. <laughs> it was, it was rustic. And so we have so much joy. I have so many joyous memories of like picking blackberries, making blackberry pie, uh, raising up chickens, as my grandma says, raising up crops. And I recently talked to her and I was like, I'm like, how did you, she was like, I actually didn't know. She didn't know that much about gardening, but, um, she just experimented and they lived a lot off of their land. I mean, I've, if you haven't had like fresh fried chicken from your yard, like delicious for us meat eaters. Anyways, but so I grew up just having that instilled in like, for me, being outside was pure joy. It was being with my family. Um, and then I grew up though, we, we moved to another tiny town outside of St. Joseph, Missouri, where we were the only black family um, in this town, school of a hundred 
we pretty much integrated like a tiny, small farming community. And so we, as you can imagine, experienced a lot of racism. Um, but I think the thing that really saved our family was the fact that we were in the country and we were able to ride bikes. We, we had freedom. We had freedom. I always talk about this special willow tree that I used to sit up under and like process. And so I really started using um, nature as like this comfort healing place for me where I was protected, um, which I know a lot of, you know, black families didn't have. And so when I had black friends from my church in the city would come visit us, they were like, like very scared. And I would like show them how to just like, it's fine. You just, you just go through this, this trail or this not trail. I mean, we were just out there being our completely ourselves. So for me, um, that, you know, that's, that's my connection to nature. And I, and I look at it now and I'm just realizing more and more how lucky, how, how wonderful that was that I had that. Um, so for me, I think growing up, um, in Dust Springs, it was, we had a, there was a lot of green, um, greenery. I'm from 2013, my family lost everything in the Halloween floods, right? And so that's, that's where, um, where I'm from and there's green, there's a green belt there, um, and a creek, right? And so, um, we, we did go there. Um, I also grew up, my grandmother had a huge garden um, in the San Marcos area. And I think, I think I had a positive relationship to the land. I could be outside. I could ride my bike um, when I was little. I think when I became more of a teenager and started to be more aware of what was happening in our neighborhood, um, and that we didn't have some of the things that the other neighborhoods had, right? We didn't have a, we didn't have a rec center. We didn't have a library. Um, there wasn't, I, and I still, I remember Pontiana, uh, there was a little um, community garden, but it was like a real community garden, not one that's like sanctioned by the people that go and create community gardens. Like people got together and built it. So that, I, I don't know. I, I have a similar relationship, I think, um, in the way that Lawan described it, like where um, I, 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 I have a love for it, but I also, it's this thing where um, maybe it's not the relationship to the, to the, um, to the environment, but the relationship to the system that has power over the environment, right? I mean, I'm just thinking about what's happening right now on the West Coast. And I mean, the violence, right? Um, and it it's scary. <laughs> so how do, how do the people who are most directly impacted by the things that are happening to the environment heal that relationship? Those are some of the questions I think that are coming up. I don't really know if, because I'm not one of the people um, that works outside on a regular basis, but my dad um, is a is a concrete mason. Um, and so, and grew up in Tuskegee and, and so um, knows how to, how to work outside. Um, and I, I guess I just, 
I feel like there's a push pull. I still haven't. I'm one of those black folks that uh, Starla talked about. That's like, you know, <laughs> uh, you get a little, you know, uh, there's a, there's a, but it's also really cool. Right. Um, me and my kids live in an apartment in East Austin now, and I can look out my window at Boggy Creek and see the birds and the trees and it's comforting. So I'm, I'm in between those two places. Thank you, Kelly. Um, so kind of building off of that, um, how does that sort of connection or relationship to the, to the outdoors, to the environment, influence the way that you see yourself and the work that you're doing now? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the first attempt at that one. So <clears throat> I think first, um, racial equity is the lens I view everything through because my background, I don't see many people in the professions that I'm in that look like me and that have a similar background. So this panel is actually pretty rare in my experience and amazing. Uh, and so I, I think um, for me, it shows up in trying to force and ask the questions like, why aren't there people that look like us? If we are community, which is our motto at the Parks and Recreation Department, who is not at the table? Uh, for and, and pushing those questions, whether or not I get in trouble or whether or not people don't like to hear it. Uh, and, my, and I also uh, helped to administer the Park Ranger Cadet Program, which was a partnership between Texas Parks and Wildlife and the Park Ranger uh, Program in the city of Austin Parks and Rec Department that's really um, designed to um, promote racial equity in the outdoors by partnering with young leaders who are already leaders in their community through Aikens High School and learning with them and from them so that we can create spaces, like Kelly was saying, around the systems that are meant to keep us out, uh, out of natural resource professions. And so part of that is changing the way we range parks, changing the faces of people who represent parks and making sure they speak the languages uh, making sure they understand that our community doesn't just look one way um, and that they are physical representations because being a person of color, having been a park ranger and having just with the country right now, having a different relationship with uniformed personnel, uh, I think it's my duty and my responsibility being from where I'm from to really push those questions like, do we have any of those vestiges within our unit and how do we dismantle them? Uh, so I think that one um, is... Through that program, it's creating pipelines that don't exist. Um, and not because, you know, I hear this narrative about, like, we just have to give exposure because people of color don't like the outdoors. That's not it. There are systems in place that keep people out of these, uh, out of these opportunities um, and a culture around the outdoors that we have to change so that it's more vibrant for all of us. Um, so it shows up in, I think, every conversation I have to say, who's not at the table? Who aren't we asking? Are we doing this park improvements? How do the people feel around it? Who's in the neighborhood versus who's moving into the neighborhood and asking those tough questions that we all think about, but that there aren't really, there isn't the really representation and the, the professionals around the table to ask them in a, in a robust manner. So I, I feel like that's my role and also mentoring my hopefully future bosses that will surpass me in whatever success I see, those cadets will then carry that torch and, 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 take it further than I can even imagine. So that's how it shows up in, in my work. For me, I think, you know, as in social work, our whole, the whole foundation of my, of my profession, my career, everything I do has to be like rooted deeply in social justice. And so 
I think for a lot of social workers, there was like this realization, like, oh, nature feels good. This is part of our healing process. And I was like, yes. And um, there's a lot of racism. There's a lot of structural racism in the natural environment. There's a lot of um, disparity in mental health and health outcomes and who has access to nature. And there's been this like rise in um ecotherapy, which I talked about, but it's very white, you know, it's very white. It's very much, um, you know, cultural appropriated. And so I began really looking at some of the ecotherapy practices and thinking about social justice and thinking about experience as a black person who loves nature and just realizing like all of this is connected. I think, um, you know, healing, environmental justice, social justice, nature, e everything is connected. And unfortunately, you know, it's been connected through this like woven ring of racism and white supremacy and uh, colonization. So I think like with every, for me in social work, I'm teaching students who are going to be becoming social work practitioners, it's about returning to um, returning to some some roots, looking at the roots um, of us as like just human beings, as mammals, as animals, and kind of what we need holistically, but also looking at the roots of how we've been so disconnected and the violence that's happened um, to us in nature and why, you know, I, I wish that I was connected to um, my like ancestral practices. And I don't know anything about them. You know, I'm I'm out there Googling with the next black person, like African, you know, knowing that these practices existed, but I don't even have my, all of my history was, is like washed away in the ocean. So for me, it's really about like trying to reconnect, um, always keeping that lens and knowing that, you know, if we are really truly doing our job, we are dismantling systems as social workers. And if we're truly healing, we're healing at the root and we're doing that and just a, an honoring what really has happened, you know, not putting this mandate of like, nature is pretty and you can go on a walk and I, and, and really looking at like what has truly happened and why we're truly disconnected. So it's all connected. And I'm glad that with social work, it's not just environmental justice, but it's, um, you know, all of this is kind of coming together. Now we have a place in, in nature as well. Thank you, Starla. Um, that made me, made me think. Um, I, I think the way I see myself, um, and the work that I'm doing, the influence of the environment, is this the issue around um, land, land sovereignty, the way that we use land, whose land it is, um, all of those things, even even things like um, borders, right, and all the all the things that that causes. Um, I uh, I feel like because um like like uh everyone on this on this panel um everything that i do is really rooted i, I try to root it in um social justice principles um and specifically um you know anti-racist principles and i think that the work that i do really um i hope <laughs> that it it um is 
around trying to make an impact with outcomes, right? And working from what what we want to create, working backwards from that, right? To try and um, alleviate some of the some of the violence. Um, I think that you know what's what's happening to the world right now, to the earth right now is um, is reflective of what's happening to the people, right? And so um, it and it. It, it influences me. I mean, when you've been, I just, the, the flood was one of the things I think that really um, scared me. And so uh, getting right, I think is really important with, um, with the land and with the earth um, and with all the ecosystem um, that we come into contact with. It's a, uh, it's something that I don't, that's not always here, but it always ends up bringing me back there. Like we think about displacement is a huge issue here, right? Uh, people experiencing homelessness, um, people who are going hungry, right? All of that is reconnects us to the land. And I think, um, you know, people thinking about children who have asthma and the disparities around that, um, all of that is really connected to the environment. And I don't think there's any way that I can do any sort of equity or anti-racist work without having an understanding of the history of what we've done to the land. Yeah, that's so deep. So I want to say a comment, unless we're running out of time, about that, that I think is really powerful for what both of you said. And I try and think about my role within Parks and Recreation because Parks and Recreation, I think, has a contentious history with the community, just like all municipal systems do, right? Because of the 1928 plan and all the history uh, that is American history. But the reason I stay with parks and public spaces is because conceptually and theoretically, these are the spaces that belong to all of us, at least conceptually. And so to me, there's more of a foundation to actually not recreate, but recreate a society that we want to see and take the uh, leisure, so to speak, out of the way we think about recreation and actually recreate the society we want to see, recreate the connections we want to want to be a part of and recreate the community that was has been and is currently broken in a lot of ways. And I think public land and the wrestling and the issues around public land is the way we do that in a very grounded, in a grounded way. And so part of the part of these conversations and conversations about what parkland is used for and how we maintain them and the stories that we tell around them who were the original land managers i think that's changing now in a good way but literally i think our job or at least i'm going to speak for myself is to recreate that that vision so we're not inheriting the same traumas and i and i identify very much with starla saying it is like I think of myself as natural resource connected, but I'm still trying to connect to my past in a lot of ways and like pick up the crumbs and the, and the pieces that are left that have been systematically erased. And through that, I think I'm finding a lot of like courage that, you know, that was a lot to survive and we're here. And so now it's our responsibility to be able to create the America and the Austin and the parklands and the park spaces we want. But getting to that point means we have to dismantle a lot of systems that are keeping things the way they are. Uh, so I think that's the bigger picture, I guess, of the way I like to think about my work. And I mean, since Kelly brought it up about people experiencing homelessness, my my uh, 
I guess, introduction into recreation or natural resource was through a conservation core lens. And so uh, the complication I talked about earlier about working in landscapes and having a history of slavery and but also seeing the power that working can do. And when you're actually putting in effort and work and reaping from the landscape in a way that's sustainable can transform people's lives from very broken and very sad and insular to uh, healthy and not alone, but I think it's a part of a healthy uh, plan uh, for uh, human psychology. So I think that's another part of the way it shows up in my work is just having that at the forefront. These issues are all an attempt to recreate the society that we wanna see. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and some of you have, have sort of touched on this a little bit. So maybe um, maybe I can draw you more towards um, the relationship between yourself and the community and the work that you do. So kind of thinking about, you know, how a racial equity lens informs not only the, the way that you show up in your work, the work that you do, but also what does that mean for um, working with the community and relationships with the community? Um, I don't mind going, uh, I'm a little more comfortable, I think, with this question. <laughs> um, so uh, the racial equity lens um, is, is the way that I try to show up um, in the work that I do. Um, I think our whole office really uh, is rooted, comes out of the community pushing for something um, to try to change things. Um, in the city. And so we really try to follow the leadership of the community. And when we say community, we're not talking about everybody. Sorry. Um, we're talking about the people who are most directly impacted by, um, by inequities, right? And so um, we, and I, and I think it's gotten, um, it, that we've created a space to have these um, complex conversations around potential unintended consequences, right? Um, and and I think, you know, um, that's the the only way that that we can we can follow the leadership of the community is by being connected and having those relationships. And so we really try um, to cultivate those relationships and listen. I think that's like the one of the biggest issues that our um, organization as a city has is around, you know, a lot of times we're used to people, um, the way that, that public input is, is framed is like, you know, these people just, you know, complain and they don't have come with any solutions, right? Like that's sort of the, some of the sense around it. But the way that we try to work is that community comes and they tell stories, right? They don't come with a, a uh, pre-planned uh, PowerPoint, you know, with here's the here's my issue and here's ten different ways that you could maybe solve it. It's like we need to be able um, and, and develop the ear to hear what community is saying, so that we can um, create co-create solutions that don't create more problems, right? Like the people who are closest to the issue have a better sense of it than we do, right? Um, and I, and I think that that's, that's the only way, um, to work in the community. We can't go around, unless community says it's an issue, we can't go around creating solutions to problems that 
aren't seen as an issue, right? Um, one of the biggest issues I keep bringing it up is, is displacement and folks who are being pushed out of um, uh, East Austin specifically and what that looks like um, for our office is really trying to support those folks and, and lift those voices up um, in spaces that they may not be able to get to, right? And um, trying to do that in an accountable way. So I think that's the that's that's the only way um, that we will, will be able to um, to do work in the community without causing more harm, right? And one other thing is that everybody always runs to our community to try to um, fix us, right? Um, and I, I feel like we're one of the only places where people get to do that and don't get a lot of questions or expectations asked of them. Um, and we're one of we're we're some of those people. Uh, we're we're the folks that that people think we should just take what we can get, right? We're lucky to to get what we can. Um, but I think the 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 more that um, thank you, the more that um, we do our work, the less that that's acceptable, right? You can't just come up in here um, without any accountability, right? We can't just take what you give us. We have some expectations, right? Especially around um, land stewardship and and green spaces and health and, and things like that. Um, yeah, I talked a lot, sorry. <laughs> and I'll jump in, I feel like I, if I'm not answering the question, but I, I think, you know, I work with a bunch of social workers and social work is a very white field. And social workers are going into communities, usually black and brown communities um, in Austin. And um, we also have this, you know, in social work, we teach to have like, we call it the person and environment systems. We have a very much a systems lens. And I think for me, part of it is really helping these young white social workers to realize a um, that the environment is more than just, you know, inside a person's house, it's the land, it's the water that they're drinking. It's the air they're breathing. It is the, um, the lack of access to green space. So for me, I think as a social work professor, looking at race equity, thinking about doing social work, making sure that we are expanding our view of what, people need and what people deserve and, and have to have and tying that to natural resources and looking at the equity issues within that. Um, and then not just, um, <laughs> I'm like, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I feel like sometimes social work is just a band-aid, you know, it's, it can be, it can be just a band-aid. Like I'm just going to connect you to a program. I'm going to connect you to the resources. But social workers have this very, um, we have leadership skills and we have an analysis. We all really do. We have an analysis because that's built into the core of our um, learning. And so using that analysis to really inspire people to take that up to and, and to dismantle and to challenge and to demand change for the for the communities that we're, we're working with and that we're working um, a part on. We have, um, sorry, it's cold in here. It's so fun to say it's cold. My window's open. I'm like shivering. I give thanks to the cold weather. Um, also, 
you know, like I said, I think it's just all about equity and access and, and, and being able to advocate and demand for what people need and for, for social workers really expanding what people need to, to have well-being and to be thriving. And I, I just, I just want to plug in the, the usefulness that social work could have within the natural environment. Um, and, and now, now I'm just kind of rambling, but that's that's like my purpose. That's what I'm excited about. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm also excited about that. And I've, I've spoken to this before to start <laughs> with. Uh, and I don't mean to be a fan. I, I, I clearly I'm a fan of both of you. But I was going to say, like, part of, I think, what your profession helps to do, because I think as, like, city employees, we have to focus on the business and the bottom line and the, you know, the deliverables, which is great. But there's also spiritual and physiological connections that should be taken into consideration when we develop programs around the outdoors. And I think that's invaluable. We don't necessarily have that expertise. And I think that's how you um, take like people of color in the outdoors or interact with people out, uh, in the outdoors without doing more harm. You can't have that lens if you don't have your profession. So I just wanted to put that out there. I've said it before. But uh, so com the community question is an interesting one. Because I'm going to probably come at it in a, a, a different different lens a little bit. I think I mentioned before that I serve on the PARD equity team, which is a parks and recreation group of folks who've gone through undoing racism that are, you know, really trying to hold each other in the department accountable internally and externally to furthering racial equity, if I had to sum up our mission in a, in a bullet point. Um, but I think part of that is um, being honest about what community we listen to and who has direct access to the, the powers of most departments. And I don't think it's intentional, but it is system, uh, systemic that there are certain organizations or certain groups that have more direct access because they have attorneys, they have organizers, they have uh, a lot of resources that have been invested in communities for centuries uh, that they have at their disposal to be able to organize around land use, around all sorts of things around parks. And I think our department is really looking at um, how do we engage with the folks that are actually in the community and who have been in leadership for a long time and not just the loudest members of the community who have the most resources who can call a council member and get a quick response. And I think that's the department's always, I think, in a, in a strange position of having to listen to everyone because we serve the entire community, but also realizing that every voice doesn't have the same access to the same ears. And so I think there is uh, we're trying to do work to look at our engagement policy and make sure that there is uh, built-in processes to ask more of those questions, like who is not at the table? Whose voice are we listening to all the time? Whose voice have we not even asked about and why? And I think the more we do that, the more we'll start to see how the system is starting to work um, and why certain people can pick up a phone and access programs and do this and this and this. With, and other folks, I mean, think about it. if you're a single mother and you have to, you know, really focus on your career and feeding folks, you're not, you don't necessarily have the time to go to a meeting at noon to organize around parks or go to, right? So we have to, we are trying to design uh, engagement systems that actually meet people uh, where they are so that we're not creating this esoteric barrier for people to be able to come in and, and, and give your opinion on our terms. Plus, if we acknowledge that we have a gap in knowledge to reach certain communities, that's our fault. So we need to talk about compensating folks uh, adequately for giving their expertise on how to access communities and really uh, break the barriers that have been systemically erected. And so we're looking at that. We're kind of wrestling right now with our team on 
what are appropriate engagement strategies to be able to like be accountable to hearing more voices and not just the same voices in the echo chamber over and over again. So I, I feel good about that work. Clearly it's not far enough, but we'll, we're, we're going to keep pushing at least as long as I'm here. And I, I think there are some good folks around the table that are asking these questions. Um, and I mean, I'm encouraged by that. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, and I mean, that's, a, that's an important shift, right? Thinking about the need to be accountable to community instead of expecting that, you know, communities are going to welcome you with open arms and you're there to save them, right? Which is the model that's been used for so long on our communities. Um, I know Kelly's mentioned before so many times just this idea of feeling like it's, it's one initiative after another and, and the East Side, poor people, people of color are being used as the testing grounds for that to see what happens. And, you know, that's, that doesn't create a, a relationship in terms of um, uh, sharing power, right? Or even thinking about building power. Um, there's still that power imbalance that continues to exist and sort of perpetuate these harmful dynamics with community. Um, to close this out, so our, our, our last question for now. Um, so, you know, the way that we see that anti-Black racism continues to affect Black people in this country was highlighted with the murders of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and, and so many others. Um, and it's also been highlighted for us in the disproportionately high, rate, high death rates of Black people because of COVID here in Austin and across the US. Um, during this time, we also saw a lot of organizations and companies that operate in the outdoor environmental field come forward and make statements or post black squares on Instagram, who had never been vocal about racial injustice before, but felt compelled enough to take a stand and express some form of solidarity. How can organizations, how can these groups continue to flex that sort of courage muscle around injustices and do the deeper work of examining how racial inequities show up in the work that they're doing? Uh, so in other words, what do these times require of us if we um, are committed to racial equity and you know, want to want to be in this for the long haul? Yeah, that's a deep question. Um, so I'm going to say a couple things related to that. And I'm going to, uh, I think one is first asking why this appears to be a new issue for your organization after the deaths of so many people, right? So having that lens of like, why wow, wasn't this an issue before? And the way a colleague of mine, uh, um, phrases it, and it's been talked about in white fragility and other studies, sociological studies around race is like, some of us live the reality of the myth of race every day. We can't turn it off. We're not erasing it. Don't want to. I'm proud of our history, but we can't turn it off and on and not see it. And then um, there are organizations or other groups who are just now realizing that uh, health outcomes and life outcomes are different for black and brown folks. And so not knowing is not a fault, but now that you know, uh, there is no going back, right? And so I think the, the main thing is going to be, what do you do after the protests have stopped? What do you do after we may or may not have a new presence? Not ad advocating for one way or the other, clearly I have feelings about it, but 
what are you going to do after the administration changes? What are we going to do to really break down the systems? And that requires, I think, really like it requires personal um, conversations about your race, right? Even if you're a white person, we don't think of white people as having a race, but they do. And it's important to the dichotomy of anti-blackness that white people see themselves as part of the process. And so a lot of the discussion that we're having now is like, it's not just people of color that have to talk about race because we live it every day. White people and white allies have to be in the consistent fight to talk about why is this a cultural tenet that is persistent and how do we dismantle it systemically? Um, not just how do we make performative statements, how do we hire a couple folks that, you know, make us look a little bit more inclusive? That's, that's no longer, and it never was, acceptable. Now it's the deep issue of who is on our board, who makes the decisions about where we work. How, how much money are we spending towards transforming our organization towards racial equity? Rocio, you say this all the time, so I'm not going to take this line from you, but Budgets are moral documents, as you always say. And I've used that line all over and over and over again, Kelly and Rocio. So if they're moral documents, look at your moral document and say, how much am I actually investing in a future that is not racist? And if the answer is enough until a pandemic hits or a lot until we run into fiscal responsibility, then we need to do some critical soul searching to figure out if, if we're actually trying to undo racism or if we're just trying to perform in order to um, be in the latest conversation. And so I think it's, it's hard for leadership to do that, but it's critical. And if you're, if you're really committed to it, then I think it, it requires some real conversations around, uh, the power holders in the organization that you have now about who's in a room, who's not, why, how do we treat people once they are in the room and who needs to step back so that other voices can step forward. And so I think those are hard. Those are conversations we're having within the parks and recreation department right now, every day, all day. And this is the most I've ever heard it, but it has to continue um, because we're undoing centuries long work. And so it's going to take that long or longer to continue to undo it so that we can build something we've never, ever seen before. So I think I think we'll get there, but I think it takes more than performative and it takes real lasting, um, deep systemic change. Oh, I agree with you so much. I was losing it, but I was on mute. Oh, I'm glad. Because <laughs> I was like, yes, yes. Um, I think Austin is really confused about who it is, right? It really believes that it's this progressive um, place. And it's this veneer, right, of, um, of progressiveness. And so if you don't want to be a poser and you really want to do the work, um, there's a, a woman named Grace Lee Boggs who, uh, who writes about, um, she's just brilliant overall. Um, but just some of the work that she's done has influenced me in thinking about, um, changing myself to change the world. Right. Um, and, and really going deep inside myself and reflecting and doing the work with my people. Um, is 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 foundational um white supremacy shows up in all of us because we have internalized it and so it's not just enough to have diversity and a rainbow coalition of people in your organization but is your organization perpetuating anti-black outcomes is it perpetuating a culture of anti-blackness is it perpetuating a culture of white supremacy right um and 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 when I say white supremacy, I'm talking about um, homophobia. I'm talking about um, 
any 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 sort of negative um, outcome related to someone's social identities, right? Um, and so, and it's imposed upon us, right? That's the issue with with white organizational culture is that it's imposed upon us. Um, I think that if if we really are truly trying to shift, um, I think that we have to be in relationship to people who are who are most directly impacted and be accountable in those relationships. And um, I think that looks different for different organizations. But like Lamar said, we can be out here performing and shaking and faking. And then when it comes down to the dollars, the people of color are the lowest paid in our organization, right? They're the, it's, it's, still, it's still the same. Um, with this gross veneer of we're we're nice we're the good good organization because um, we put out a, a a statement right that can cause more harm than it can help because then you got uh, people of color who all who we're always talking about this stuff um, looking at y'all sideways because we know um, and so and the and the and the, uh, the critical white folks know too. Um, that's something else that I think is really important is that um, we need white folks to um, to be anti-racist um, and be thinking about this in terms of, of how racism impacts their ability to be fully human. And um, like we saw with the with the uprising, um, that whenever we see what's happening to people that it, it feels like that's our child or our mother or our father, or our people out there, right? And not just another black body. And I think that's the difference, right? Is that if if no one tolerated this foolishness, then we it, it wouldn't be a thing, you know? Um and and I, I feel like Austin got this bad. Um worse than anywhere I've ever been about being confused about uh, white supremacy and who we are at the root. And you can look at any outcome, any outcome on any day in Austin, Texas, and you will see that race is the most reliable indicator for people's quality of life outcomes. And um, being Black in Austin is, your outcomes, it's it's set up against you being Black or Brown in Austin, really. So that's that's where I I think people need to do do the work. Do the work. And I think people need to stop. I've been seeing all this stuff, y'all, about these folks pretending to be Black. It is irritating me. Um, folks claiming um, academics uh, saying that they're, they're, um, they're Black folks. Being, got Someone got a diversity hire. Like, just weird, appropriative um, acts. And, it, and it's, you know, I, I can't. It's cool to be black until you're black, right? Until the police are called. So, anyway, I just co-sign everything you've said. I mean, I don't even think you know I can say it better. I know coming from like a, a clinical social worker perspective, where I every single class is a you know is a racial justice course in my world. Like it's that's. That's all we talk about. And I wonder sometimes if my white students are feeling weary, but I'm like, we have to toughen up. (laughs) That's what I'm telling white folks. Like you have to toughen up. You have to be able to experience 
and go towards that deep pain because there is no way that this is going to be um, changed or healed, the racial harm in America, if white people don't go down there and just like cry the tears you need to cry in your room, process the feelings, read the real history. And then at the very least, when a black or brown person tells you something about their experience, about their life, like believe them at face value. Don't try to whitewash it, put a bow on it. Um, and then really, you know, I, I like Kelly, you mentioned like you have to imagine what what things could look like, things should look like, and then work to that. And I think a lot of times people get really stuck in the pain. But I promise you, like you can have a hard conversation and you can cry and feel bad about the state of the world, and then you can process that and move forward. And so I think just having the interpersonal skills to be able to process the realities of racism and the and the violence and the harm and um, your role in it, processing that, and then like toughening up. <laughs> you just got to toughen up to be able to show up and then look at your job, look at your work and, and make moves, like make moves, put the money, put your money where your anti-racism is. I tell you, yeah, like the, the faux statements, I mean, <laughs> nobody even believes them. You know, people can see through inauthentic, 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 uh, inauthenticity. Sorry. People can see through that. People can see through that, you know? So nobody's playing nobody. Like, that's why, you know, people want to make real change. Like, let's get real. <laughs> let's get real. That's, that's, those are my tips. <laughs> Get tough, get real. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Um, yeah, what what an incredible group of people. Um, I'm so grateful to all of you for for coming, for sharing your your wisdom, your experience. And um, I think that we have at least one other question from the Facebook Live. Hi, um, I just want to first thank you all so much. It's been such an honor to witness this conversation. And now I'm going to have get tough and get real, like on a loop in my brain all the time. <laughs> um, and I just, just one thing I was thinking about a lot because, you know, obviously I work in nonprofit and I've worked in nonprofit for a long time. And then I also worked in mental health um, as an art therapist. And so working with other social workers and care providers there are so many blind spots in both of those fields um, because I think people feel like they're doing, I'm doing good. And so they just are, it, it creates this wall for people. They're more unwilling in some ways to see their bias. Um, and it's really unfortunate because those are the fields that could do so much good. Um, and that's what they're meant to do. That's what nonprofits meant to do. That's what mental health professions are meant to do. And then there's these huge barriers. And I think it's similar to what Austin as a city is experiencing. We're progressive. There's no way that this is a problem for us. And it creates more of a barrier in, in some ways. And another you know, city that might not have this attitude about themselves already being like woke or whatever. You know, so uh, it's a lot to think about. And it's I, I think it's, you know, obviously these conversations have gained some momentum in the last few months. And I just really hope that they'll it'll continue that way and um we as an organization are really committed to to not having this just be a moment but continue to commit and admit when we make mistakes and recommit so i do have a question from facebook um 
What has been the most common barrier in your work with getting the decision makers on board with diversity, inclusion, and understanding? Sorry, on board with diversity and inclusion and understanding how access is a precursor to mental health and equity? It's a good question. Could you just say that one more time? Yes, yes. Um, what has been the most common barrier in your work with getting the decision makers on board with diversity and inclusion? and understanding how access is a precursor to mental health and equity? Um, I can speak from the, like the city side. Um, I think that um, our leaders are uh, elected folks, right? Um, and so trying to make sure that they understand how racism uh, doesn't just impact people of color, basically the conversation that we had before that it also impacts white folks. So, um, cause people have constituents, right. And I think the hardest part is really, um, trying to think about this as life work instead of like a checkbox or something that's, you can do that's really splashy that you don't have to be accountable for. Um, and then I think like, uh, Within the within the city um, infrastructure, like uh, like directors and things like that, it's still it's a risk. It's still risky. People still aren't fully bought in, right? It's scary um, for people. Um, I mean, if you look right now, all the stuff that's going on around uh, defunding and the like, uh, the stuff with the state. Um, coming in right and the potential for um, some of that stuff is is a risk you know and so everyone hasn't bought in Um, I think it's more I think it's less about fixing people and more about fixing systems and so the stuff around like um, and I think it, it access is a piece of it but I also think it's about outcomes right we have to start with where we are and a lot of times people go into this work and um, and they think that they're going to fix it one person at a time. And that ain't how it works. Right. Um, you have to we have to look critically at, at the systems that were built by and for white people that everyone else had to fight and die to enter. Right. We were having this little conversation off to the side in the chat about social work and the history of social work. Right. And how it's really problematic. It started out really red, right? Um, and really about people and, and trying to, to support women specifically and help folks. And it turned into this professionalized sort of very white um, space. And so what is what is social work? What is the city? What is Parks and Rec's um, uh, orientation and relationship to poor communities, right? How is it a foot of oppression on those communities? And how do we work? How do we work backwards? Because it's not just about um, we have a collective mental health problem. We have a collective mental health issue, right? It's not about you know these are natural reactions and responses to the stuff that we are reacting and responding to. You know, it, it makes sense why people are angry, why people are are struggling. It's hard. It's difficult. And I think just even to take a collective we saw breath and acknowledge what's really happening, we have never done that ever as a 
as the experiment that is the United States of America, we have never been like, yo, that was messed up, right? Ever. And so if we can't do that, how do we expect we're going to continue to fix people? They, they, the story about the babies in the river, I'm not going to tell it because I really don't like thinking about babies being thrown into a river, but um, right. Um, how do we, how do we go look and find out who's throwing the babies in the river instead of constantly picking them up out of the river, right? Downstream. How do we think upstream? You know, what's the intervention? And who are we in relationship with that tells us that the intervention might actually work, that the problem is the problem that we see? So I'll stop. But that's my thoughts. My, my answer to that question is just fear and control. That The biggest barrier I've seen is um, people just being afraid to... Have hurt to cause harm, even though they are allowing harm to black people and brown people. They're allowing harm for black and brown people, but they don't want to harm white people's feelings or white people's discomfort. So if you want to make sweeping system changes, you have to get people on board. But there's this hesitancy and fear around, um, well, that's going to upset people even though you have a whole community and history of people upset. So it's like the priorities of who who gets to feel comfortable and then just control, you know, I think that, and I think that's all tied up into like white supremacy and capitalism. Um, so it's like, if you can, if you can work and uh, approach what you're doing and justify it in a way that's not rooted in control, control, um, protecting white, people's feelings and comfort, then you can make some changes. But I, I feel like, you know, I've been on so many diversity, equity, inclusion, work groups, you know, uh, consultation groups, strategy. And it's, it's all they're, they're They all start to feel the same because it's always blocked by someone who is afraid. So I just think people need to be bolder and, 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 um, uh, yeah, I'm just ready for people to be bold or step aside and let the people who are bold be in charge. So that's what I got to say about that. Man, that 100% agree with everything that was said above. I'm going to add two things. Uh, and I'm, I'm really encouraged, but even though this is really sort of depressing things to talk about, I'm really encouraged that we're all seeing very similar things. I think the barriers that I've faced, I'm going to talk about my career in general so that I don't, I'm not speaking about one particular instance or another, but I think it's, um, it feels as if sometimes that it's an optional conversation to have, you know, like racial equity is like an elective part of your job, as opposed to a core foundational tenet to what you have to do. Um, so that's hard to disseminate, I think, in an organizational culture. I, I dropped a, a link in the chat that uh, is a PDF to how white supremacy shows up in organizational culture. And um, I think part of it is it's difficulty showing the interconnections or like Kelly said, is like it's not just racism. It's also homophobia. It's also so many things that are connected that prioritize and elevate one group over another based on social things that people can't control, right? That's a, that's a, that, this is a pathological human problem. This is a, this is an illness that we must root out and fix if we are to exist on this planet uh, for as long as we can. 
I think the other, I'm just going to be really brutally honest, is that a lot of my career has been um, strategizing behind the scenes so that leaders around me who have the power to make big sweeping decisions, um, I've had to strategize with people that they will listen to because they won't listen to me because of what I look like. So I've literally had to go to white men sometimes and say, here are my ideas. Can you help me champion these forward? It's debilitating. It's heartbreaking. It reinforces the white supremacist system that we're in. I've pointed it out. I've talked about it. I've elevated it. I've shown it. And some white men will say, yes, I'll do this, but I want to be clear about where the ideas came from and like undo it from their lens. Right. Um, but that has been the majority of success has been like years and years of saying, we need to look at this. We need to do this. We need to do this. And people saying, oh, you just have an identity crisis or, oh, this is a problem or, oh, this is just you. And other people saying it, community members saying it, and then giving it to one well-placed white male to say, can you just say this comment to your boss uh, for me and see how it goes? And then sweeping change happens in short order. And so I think kind of what uh, basically what Starla was saying is like, it, it, it's going to take some um, deep soul searching and some work that has to be done. And in my, uh, in my opinion, all city employees have to do this because we are servants of the city not the other way around. It's not optional, right? When we agree to be employees of the city, we agree to serve everybody. And so if that's the case, then we need to serve each other internally, right? Employee to employee in a way that's racially equitable and really undo both myself and others. It has to be accountable to undoing the racism and how our power shows up. Because I have power to be able to move and money and do this and do that. But I need to, I have to be accountable to the community to do that. Not everybody does that. And, um, and and I think the system protects people to be able to just continue the way it is. And so if you hurt people's feelings, often that it's, it's, it puts us at risk because we're the representatives, the only people in a work organization that's able to say this, but also the most at risk um, through the structure of racism. So I think one thing I would say is maybe listening to people who don't look like you when they have good ideas and um, actually uh, synthesizing it and then recognizing when you listen to it from another voice and say like, Hmm, sounds like I need to do some internal work on that. Uh, and be very critical about how that shows up. Uh, and maybe it's an unconscious bias, but now it can't be unconscious because it was set on the webinar. And so now we have to deal with it. <laughs> so okay. that's the biggest barrier. The biggest barrier, I think too, what I thought was interesting about what Starla said is that, um, the tenants that she named are, tenants of enslavement, right, of, of chattel slavery and um, a big part of why we're, we're here now. Um, fear and control, that's going to ring in my head for a little while. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, um, you got to be uncomfortable. You got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. You got to get, get a thicker, we have to have thicker skin. And I think that's for people of color too because we know when white folks get nervous what that means for us right when y'all get uncomfortable that can mean really bad things for us and so historically we've tried to to keep um uh white folks uh, more comfortable i think too this is this is an opportunity um for for us to do some um repair right um, especially around land. I wanted to say this before we got off um, and thinking about uh, some of the stuff that I think is Asheville is doing work around, like reparation. And um, I know Chicago has done some work around that. It looks different in both places, 
but I think it's a, a valid point of um, conversation and thinking about how the the budget is a moral document and thinking about um, nonprofit, right? And the industrial complex that's very white that serves mostly people of color, right? Um, those, those types of um, material things need to be um, up for grabs too. I could say a lot more, but I'm looking at I, mean, I, <laughs> I would witness this conversation for the rest of the day and feel like there was still so much more ground to cover. Um, we really appreciate you all being here for this panel. I feel like the city is extremely fortunate to have all of you um, out there doing this work and being resources um, and having these conversations so openly and honestly. Um, it's really an incredible thing. Um, and I would just encourage people who are watching to learn more about ways that you can um, uh, kind of learn and engage, do trainings. There's undoing racism trainings. There's all kinds of resources now. And there's a, a strong commitment by the city to get people doing this work, not just at the city level and the partner organization level, but just all, all people in the community um, to engage in this practice. So um, thank you all. If anybody, um, if anyone uh, joined kind of midway through, this will be on Facebook forever and also we'll post it on our website. Um, and so um, you can watch it anytime. So if you, if you tuned in late, you can watch it anytime. Um, I just want to thank all of our panelists again and uh I'll send out the link that Juan um, provided uh, in the Facebook comments. Season one of the Austin Parks cast is available now on your favorite podcast platforms. Do you have a question or topic you'd like us to talk about? You can leave us a voice message on our Anchor FM webpage at anchor.fm backslash Austin Parks cast. We might even play your message on the show. A friendly reminder that you can find all of 2020's Park Summit sessions at austinparks.org backslash summit. Season two will kick off in a few weeks, so keep an eye out on Austin Parks Foundation's social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a follow if you haven't already. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon. We want to say a special thanks to our year-round sponsors, ACL Music Festival, Wheatsville, Academy Sports and Outdoors, Austin Subaru, Cap Metro, Central National Bank, Cirrus Logic, Industry Print Shop, Northern Trust, Sage Creek Wealth of Raymond James, Siete Family Foods, Sunday, Tito's Handmade Vodka, and Zilker Brewing. Austin Parks Foundation is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving parks, trails, and green spaces across our beloved city. Our tagline is People Plus Parks. We aim to give every Austinite a park within a 10-minute walk, no matter what part of town they call home. Everyone deserves a great park in their neighborhood. The Austin Parks cast is a production of Austin Parks Foundation. Find out more information about our Park Summit series and the work we do to improve parks for every Austinite at austinparks.org. <laughs>